there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. Now, I just finished talking with Miranda Brown about a book that is going to be of interest not just to historians of China, people interested in Chinese history and early China specifically, but also people who are interested in the history of health and healing and medicine, and also people who are interested in historiography and notions of an archive. This is the book, The Art of Medicine in Early China, The Ancient and Medieval Origins of a Modern Archive. This came out with Cambridge University Press in 2015. Now, what the book does is it takes us through a series of chapters that each focus on an exemplary figure in order to make some kind of salient point about the constructedness of the category of the medical, the ways that the construction and reading and production of an archive shapes um, the stories that come out of it, and really offers some lessons in how we ought to um, and how we might think about or rethink how we tell and understand the tellings of the history of medicine in China. So the book focuses on a series of figures um, that you'll hear us talking about in a moment as medical fathers, and it asks some questions about them, right? And we'll talk about this in the moments to come. Where did these fathers of medicine come from, and how did they acquire such a prominent place, the book asks, in both the modern historiography and in the popular imagination? So the book is going to argue something um, very particular about this, and these um, right now are going to be the words of the book. The medical fathers are less useful for explaining the development of Chinese medical practice or theory in antiquity. Instead, they're of interest because they reveal how early Chinese authors provided modern historians like Joseph Needham, not only with the raw materials, but also with the categories, genres, and objects of scholarly inquiry with which to study the past. So a key theme of this book is going to be the theme of continuity, not rupture, um, but continuity between the historiographical practices of early China, of early um, storytellers, and modern historians of Chinese medicine. So with that, I will leave you to it. Um, Thank you very much for listening and by listening for supporting the channel, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Miranda Brown about her new book, The Art of Medicine in Early China. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Miranda. And thanks so much both for writing a book that's so interesting and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome. Uh, Thank you. So, Miranda, let's start, as is traditional for the podcast, by talking a little bit about how you came to the field. What brought you to the study of academic China uh, or the academic study of China? And how did you come to focus on early China specifically? Um, Well, I owe everything to a technical difficulty. Um, When I was before I started undergraduate, I wanted to study uh, French. And so I was trying to register from classes from Paris before school started. Um, and they had just instituted a, a telephone registration system called Telebears. Um, and it didn't work. And I couldn't get into French. And so I thought I should do something in history. Um, and I thought China was a big place. And the early China was being offered by David Keatley. And I thought, well, you know, it's not a bad idea to start at the beginning. Um, and needless to say, never left. Um, so I owe everything to telebears. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the book that we're talking about today, um, as the title indicates, looks at medicine in early China, but it takes a very particular approach to understanding the historiography, the historicizing, the emergence of particular kinds of figures through a close reading of the rhetoric, the narrative, the kinds of sources and other um, textual and discursive elements of medical and non-medical texts. Um, So how did you come to this particular project? What brought you to a focus on not just these sources and this particular topic, but a book-length project about this issue? Well, you know, this was a detour, right? I I initially really wanted to write about the history of medicine. Um, And, well, I mean, like any historian, you want to sort of tell it as it is. Um, The problem was is that I kept running against the the wall of my sources. And, you know, I had a big problem. I I didn't feel like I could just talk about medicine without asking how these particular sources um, came to be regarded as medical sources, right? (laughs) 
Um, and, you know, so I decided that I had to sort of deal with that problem first. Um, and then it became its own sort of monster. Uh, and so I, it really is a book about archive formation um, and the things that we use to, to construct histories um, today. Now you say in the introduction, the book began, this is in the words of the book, the book began as an indictment of the present. My goal, this is uh, the, I'm using the words of the book, so not my goal. My goal was to expose and clear away the distortions introduced by modern ideologies into our interpretation of ancient Chinese medical history beginning in the 19th century. And you go on to say that you also discovered the tenacious survival of ancient historiographical practices, traces of which are everywhere, expressed in the selection and interpretation of the archive. And so we'll see that playing out over the course of the chapters of the book and that um, real, I think it's a really beautiful concern with an exploration of the importance and the nature of the archive in shaping the kind of history that we tell and in drawing connections not just to our own historiographical practices, but also to those that came before us that we might not be self-conscious about having a connection to. Okay, so there's a one figure that comes up throughout the book um, that's raised right in the introduction that's not necessarily one of the medical fathers, and we'll talk about that concept that the book explores, but is a kind of father of a field, and this is the figure of Joseph Needham. Now, Needham and Needham's notion of particular, um, particularly important medical fathers and medical figures recurs throughout the chapters of the book. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of Needham and Needham's approach for shaping, for uh, being a kind of point of intersection with your own um, engagement with this issue? Well, I mean, I guess Needham is arguably one, well, I don't know how to put this diplomatically, but, you know, let's just say he's a huge giant in the field of Chinese science, right? I mean, I mean, everybody has doing the history of sciences or probably in Chinese studies or East Asian studies knows Needham, right? So he's a convenient into this issue. Um, you know, I could have started the book with somebody, you know, influential in China, but I don't know if that would have had the same kind of name recognition. Um, so for me, he's not someone to sort of knock, but I think it's he's someone to reflect upon, you know, because so many of us were inspired by science and civilization. Um, and a lot of us are critical of it, of course. Um, but I think in some ways he's, you know, I would say that one of the fathers of the Western historiographical tradition, um, and so he's a hard person to not kind of engage, right? Mm-hmm. So not just Joseph Needham, but also a series of other figures um, act as landmarks throughout the book for us. You call these figures the medical fathers, and you talk about early in the book the ubiquity of these medical fathers in discourses of and histories of uh, Chinese medicine. So let's maybe start um, or progress to that notion. Who or what are the medical fathers and what's important for us to understand about the way you're using that concept in order to have a kind of foundation from which to move on to the chapters of the book? Well, I mean, if you, you just go online and you sort of Google history of Chinese medicine, right, you get a sequence of guys that supposedly contributed to the making of acupuncture or sort of pharmacology. Um, and these are usually sort of, I, some of them are primordial figures. Others have sort of a quasi-historical existence. Um, now, what's interesting is you, they don't just have a web presence. They're also found in what we think of as serious academic history, um, and, and including Needham's. Um, and I, so I think that's, I guess that's where I would start. The, the, med, the term medical father is actually Needham's um, phrase, right? But the, the group of fathers that he identifies is not of his own making. That's something that he inherited from, I think, centuries of Chinese historiography. Great. Now, you talk also early in the book about your research design and the particular way that you went about selecting which of these medical fathers or which of these figures to feature and which to use as the foci of your chapters. So because the chapters are so thoughtful about their source base, right, and about the approach to and the nature of the sources that you're using for the study, can you talk a little bit about that? How did you go about selecting, what were your criteria for selecting the figures, the stories, that you used here um, and also the sources, the kinds of sources that you were looking at? Well, I mean, you know, as an early China person, you often don't have much choice about your sources, right? There's only so many that you can play with. Um, so uh, there was not much selection of sources. It was just everything I had. Um, and, you know, this is 
it's very different from working in the modern archive in some sense. Um, so in terms of the fathers, I picked the ones where, you know, you could do things with, like you know, there are figures that are in the sort of ancestral sort of progression or sequence that I did not talk about or devote a full length chapter to. And that was because I didn't feel like you could get much of a story out of them. Um, just there wasn't enough um, sort of information to think about how that figure, as we know um, him or it, you know, came into being. Um, so a lot of times sort of the sort of subjects was, I think, a function of really what kinds of materials were out there and available for the mining. And can you talk a little bit about that range? Because the, the na- nature of the materials used in the book really interestingly and importantly doesn't just constitute materials that listeners and readers might think of as self, uh, self-referentially medical or explicitly medical. So what about the kind of range of the source base? Um, do you think it's important for us to understand here? Well, I mean, I mean, that was one of my first problems, right, that sort of took me in this direction. And I would sort of joke as the meta direction instead of sort of talking about medicine proper. Um, and that had to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of things had a lot of text has been at this point treated or regarded as just a source of medical history. And you had to kind of think about, well, what, where did it come from? You know, sometimes it came from, you know, works of history or chronicles. And then, you know, that sort of makes you think, oh, well, how does something go from being a, a part of a chronicle to a sort of a, a foundation of Chinese medical historiography, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, what I wanted to do was contextualize that kind of sort of, I would say, conversion process or translation process. And in order to do that, you had to contextualize a source against sort of a broader genre or time period. Um, and that often meant sort of, sort of looking at something that we now think of as a medical story um, against sort of a wide sort of range of sort of exemplars um, that, you know, ne- may not carry that designation today. Okay, great. Thank you. So let's actually get into the chapters of the book. There are two parts of the book, and the first part of the book looks at representations of exemplary healers before the emergence of a category that we might call medical history. So this is pre a category of medical history representations of these healers. It looks very closely at the rhetorical and also the historical contexts in which representations of these figures were produced. And each of the chapters here focuses on a particular exemplary figure. The first chapter looks at the figure of a Chin healer, Attendant He. Now, historians have treated a particular episode from the Zhuozhan that fe- that features attendant He as a source for understanding medical practice in antiquity. Um, and you talk about this particular account um, as it revolves around the sickness of Lord Ping. So maybe uh, one good place to start is just to kind of start with this account. Can you just kind of briefly, for listeners, um, give a the kind of highlights of who is this attendant huh in this account and what's going on um, that we need to know about this story? Well, I mean, supposedly he's a 6th century BC figure, right? So he'd be contemporaneous with of Hippocrates, another, you know, um, interesting person or non-person. Um, and, you know, purportedly he's from the state of Qin, um, and he goes on a mission to the state of Jin. And these are the two major superpowers during the warring states in this period, or two of, among a few others. Um, and the Lord of Jin was sick. He was a young guy who was, you know, I guess, how shall I put it, living like a nephew of mine, which is, you know, rocking it out a bit too much with the girls and the booze, right? Um, and, you know, mixing the two. Um, and so, you know, he ends up comatose. I mean, this is not the particular moment. But anyway, he, he fries his brains. Um, and the minister who's really in charge, that sort of Dick Cheney figure, um, gets worried and so calls in this healer from Chin who's, I guess, got some kind of reputation for fixing people. Um, and he says, look, I can't do anything for you. Um, and the guy says, well, why not? He says, well, you're not really sick in, in sort of a, in a normal sense. Um, just, you need to like chill out. Right. <laughs> um, and then he says, you know, sort of as an aside, by the way, your Dick Cheney figure is going to drop dead soon. Um, which, you know, is a very strange comment because it seems like it's like not in the right place or it, it seems like it's a non sequitur. <laughs> um, and 
so most people have interpreted this episode as a case. I think what actually what initially happened is that people wanted him to say there's a ghost involved or some kind of God that's upset. And he says it's not that. Now, people have taken that remark out of context and they've argued that this is a moment um, where Chinese medicine becomes naturalistic, right? There's this rejection of the spirit world. Um, and, you know, that healers are now distinct from what they often call shamans or religious healers. Um, and so this is going, supposed to be a big moment or a big break um, with sort of traditional modes of healing. Um, now, that is, I think, a gross sort of distortion of that, yeah, what the text is actually doing and actually w- what the guy is actually saying inside of the text. Um, well, what he's actually saying ha- is, has, you know, he just never rejects the idea that there's any, that gods and, 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 you know, and ghosts can make you sick. He's just saying that they're not involved in this particular case. The young Lord needs to sort of lay off the, the women, you know, if he wants to get well. Um, and um, so that's the sort of storyline, I guess, you know. And so, you know, the healer basically doesn't do very much. The Lord, young Lord gets well, um, and the Dick Cheney figure dies, you know. Right. <laughs> that's about it. So thank you. So the chapter um, kind of looks at the narrative structure of this account, right? Rather than assuming that Attendant Ho was a historical person, and this is reflective of something having to do with medical practice, it instead looks at the discourse and the structure to show that, as you said, that interpretation is actually flawed. Um, the chapter shows that Ho was not a historical person, but instead was a persona. He served as a literary device in the original narrative. And this is important because of, as you show, um, uh, the kind of relationship between him um, and the understanding of him as an alter ego of another figure in the narrative. This is a statesman, right, that was known for his expertise in spiritual matters, as you just alluded to. Now, the chapter argues that the figure of Attendant Ha was actually the work of chroniclers who were not primarily concerned with healing. Instead, they were concerned with political matters. And so in a way, you argue here that this is a political parable. It's not a momentous recording of a a kind of event in medical history. Can you talk a a little bit about that? Well, I mean, I think you summarized it very well. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think that, the, I mean, that text is, you know, actually taught today in Chinese medical schools as, as a moment in Chinese medical history that they all learn, right? Um, but I think that is a distortion or it is, it evinces a certain lack of understanding about what that, that textual piece was supposed to do originally um, in the Chronicle. Um, and, you know, I think um, rather than complain about just like the distortion that's produced, I think by looking at isolating this part of a text and, and treating it as a medical source, I think the more interesting question is to look at, you know, how that piece of text, which had a rhetorical function, became sort of, um, I guess, accepted as real history, right, or as medical history in particular, and that translation process, which happens a little bit later in, in time. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. So after this chapter that looks at this particular case, we go to another chapter that does a complementary kind of work, right? And it focuses on another figure. Um, This is a different figure, but also one that looms very large in the history and the historiography of Chinese medicine. And this is Bian Chue. Okay, so chapter two looks at an episode that's widely used by historians to, in the words of the book, explain the theories of ancient healers. And it focuses on this figure of Bian Chue. Now, He's a figure who's often used, as the again, as the book states, to illuminate the emphasis on preventive care in the Chinese medical tradition. So for listeners who have never heard of Bian Chue, can you kind of briefly sum up, like, who or what is this guy and how or what's important about the way he gets associated with preventive care specifically? Like, what do we need to understand about that to, to understand how the chapter is going to kind of upend that interpretation? Well, I mean, most people think he's a mythical figure, um, and that has a lot to do with some mural, which people think is a depiction of him from the Han Dynasty, where he's half bird and, you know, half acupuncturist. Um, but I guess the thing is, is that just about everything in the world is associated with Bian Chue, which is kind of, <laughs> is kind of interesting. He's kind of like, you know, another giant in sort of the Chinese medical tradition. Um, so the story that he's kind of very so- closely associated with is a story where he tells a lord who's he thinks is dying that the guy needs to work sort of move on a disease you know or an illness um and get treated and the guy says i'm not feeling ill so i'm not 
sick. You need to go away. Um, and then he comes back and says, like, you know, the disease is progressing further into your body. So, um, you know, that you really need to move on it now. And, the, you know, the Lord says, well, I'm actually not feeling sick at all. You really need to go away. Um, and then, you know, this, this was sort of repeated several times before um, Pientra, um, you know, decides to give up, right, um, because he's really annoying the Lord. Um, and then after the Lord starts to feel sick, of course, he sends for Pientra, but Pientra is gone because he thinks the Lord's too sick to fix. Um, and then the Lord dies, right? Um, and this is sort of the story about, like, ignoring your doctor. And I think this is, you know, kind of considered a foundational sort of parable in the Chinese medical tradition, which is it's always easier to get stuff when they're um, diseases, when they're incipient, right? Um, not when they're full blown. Um, so that's what I mean by the preventive sort of paradigm, right? Um, and this is a story that everybody tells, you know, about why you need to sort of go see the doctor and get checked um, rather than wait until you're really sick. Now, the chapter actually argues that Bian is best understood as the creation of what you call court persuaders, in the warring states. So again, for listeners who may not be familiar with that notion, what is, can you talk about this notion of a court persuader? Um, and what, how does Bianchua get created by these persuaders? And perhaps like what kinds of sources got you there? Well, I mean, this sort of, okay, so court persuaders are people that went around in the late warring states looking for jobs, um, and basically they were talking heads, right? Um, uh, and they basically wanted ministerial positions or some kind of aid position at a court. Um, some of them wrote texts, or some of their followers wrote texts that we sometimes regard as philosophy. Um, so one of the most famous sort of persuaders would have been Han Feinze. Um And this is... Um, there is a text that's associated with his tradition, um, and that is actually where we find the first story of Bien and the sort of lord who's not feeling ill, but who's sick. Um, and when I started to sort of follow the trail of the story and where it first appeared, I, I started to get very concerned that this story had very little to do with what doctors were doing in this period at all. Um, because, you know, once you sort of put that story into a broader rhetorical context, so the kinds of messages that persuaders are sending, then you start to see that it, you know that they're taking elements of medical practice, but kind of reconfiguring them in order to fit what their sort of broader goals, which is to sort of, you know, get rulers to think about, you know, policy in, in preventative terms. Um, so sort of the idea would be like you hire someone who's very good, um, who can spot rebellions, spot trouble um, way in advance, um, because it's a lot easier to deal with a problem when it's small rather than when it was a full blown sort of issue like an army invading your border. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, I think, is what's interesting to me was the fact that, you know, the first references to be going after incipient ills or actually always came or always appeared in a context where someone is discussing the need to, you know, hit political threats early. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, OK, so that's enough. OK, no, no, no. I mean, please go on. No, no, I don't. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, so this is so we've now heard about at least two cases um, where you're taking figures who are kind of I think for a lot of contemporary readers and listeners who have read or heard anything about Chinese medicine, kind of exemplary figures that are understood as self-evidently medical and really showing that that's not um, necessarily the way to understand this, and it's really useful I think as a corrective to how we understand this historiography. Now, as we move to chapter three. Um, Chapter 3 asks us to ask a little bit about the voice of the healer specifically, and it asks, how did healers represent themselves? Did they even represent themselves? And if so, to what end? Now, it does this by looking closely at the biography of the granary master in Sima Qian's records of the grand historian. These include records of medical consultation attributed to Chen Yui. Okay, so... These two uh, names that I just mentioned, Granary Master and Chen Yui, what's the relationship between them for listeners? Well, I mean, so the Chen Yui is a Han Dynasty figure, um, and in the sort of medical historiography, he's famous because he has these case histories that are recorded in his biography in the historical records of Sima Qian. Um, what's interesting, of course, is that in that chapter and in most sort of early text. He's not referred by too often by his name. He's referred to by this, I would, I guess, sobriquet, which is the granary master. And this reflects the fact that he was supposedly a sort of minor official in his home state of Qi. 
uh, by sort of tra- background. Um, and actually, in the early period, he was most famous not for his healing, but because his daughter supposedly pleaded his case to Emperor Wen, um, and this led to penal reform. So um, what I was interested in doing was teasing out that sort of chat, that the name of the chapter and the guys and the significance of a nickname, um, and because I think it shows us actually that a lot of this, you know, what we think of as medical record or medical data actually, you know, um, comes out of a text that kind of has a rhetorical purpose. Um, I believe that Samachian, and this is something that, you know, I think I'm not the only one who would argue this, you know, took materials from an archive and reshaped them to tell a story about the dangers of political life. Um, and he was using this one figure that it was closely associated, not so much with medicine in many people's mind, but with legal reform and sort of playing up the legal resonances of his sort of medical case records. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, this is interesting to me because, you know, we think of these things as med- just pure medical records, but, you know, there's, there's something, there's, I think, a backstory um, to the, their creation and their, pre- their current presentation. That's right. Now, the chapter actually shows really interestingly, right along those lines, that the format of these records of the Granary Master actually uh, reproduces or mirrors the logic and also the structure of legal case studies. So, or legal case summaries, rather. So what's important about that? Like, why, um, for you, in terms of what you're trying to argue here, is it important that the structure of these case studies um, or these medical cases actually mirrors the legal case studies? What does that tell us about um, these, um, insofar as they represent or not or speak to the category of the medical and its relationship to the legal? Well, I mean, I don't know if you can just disentangle those two very easily, right? And I mean, because a lot of healing and a lot of writing about healing happened in the context of sort of imperial administration in early China. Um, and that to me was something that was very interesting. I mean, I mean, it's a little bit different from the case where you have a lot of writing about doctors in the case of, you know, in conjunction with political rhetoric. But here, are, people are actually tracking disease and illness and treatments, um, the healer's success records um, inside of the bureaucracy. Um, and what this suggests, of course, is that, you know, medicine isn't a standalone discipline in this period. It's, it's just one of many things that, you know, sort of administrators or bureaucrats do. Um, along with flood control. Um, and so I think this, you know, it's a cautionary note, right? When we go rush out and say this is a medical text or a medical concept, we have to kind of step back a little bit and say, well, you know, should we really impose this kind of disciplinary sort of field into the distant past? Or, you know, do these things exist in some kind of continuum? Mm-hmm. So again, it's a, just like we saw, in, but in very different ways or in somewhat different ways in the first two chapters, this study in this chapter is really asking us to take a critical perspective on the category of the medical, um, I think in a really useful way. So, and, and the chapter wraps up um, by suggesting or by showing that the granary master is actually presented here as an official, right? And it's only later um, that these records are interpreted as medical documents, of some sort. So again, this is, um, I think this is useful to keep in mind given uh, the broader interest in historiography and historical practice in the archive that you're showing in this book, because it, I think it really reminds us more generally that a source is not necessarily one kind of thing. Um, sort of the sources and the nature of how we read sources as objects is very much a matter of the particular historical moment that the reader um, is in and is finding themselves in. So sources are not self-evidently any one kind of thing, and I think this is um, really shown very beautifully in this first part of the book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> So then um, this brings us to the second part of the book, Medical Histories. The second part of the book, part two, looks at the formation of medical histories in early China through the list of exemplary healers and identifies a number of key events that you're showing here prompted responses that helped produce um, what we have now as the current image or the present image of these early medical fathers. And I'll go through these four events that you mention here. Um, One is the reorganization of the imperial collections in 26 BC, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, The second is the rise of literati healers beginning in the Song, and we'll talk about that as well. Then we have the publication of important medical classics in the 1060s, we'll talk about that, and also the emergence of textual controversies regarding a canonical work of medicine. So we'll see some of these come up in the chapters in part two. Chapter four helps us to understand 
when authors began to bring together, to meld, to combine materials from actually very different textual traditions into an origin story about medicine. Now, it argues that the first such origin story was the product of imperial bibliographer Liu Xiang. Okay, so let's just kind of start here. Who was this figure, Liu Xiang, and um, what's important about what his job was? Like, he was an imperial bibliographer, so what's significant about uh, kind of that job? What was he doing? Well, I mean, this is a sort of an event that's often seen as comparable to the foundation of the library, right? Or if libraries, more accurately, in, in Alexandria in the 3rd century B.C., um, you know, which actually, by the way, some people argue, including Vivian Nunn, was responsible for the creation of the Hippocratic Corpus. Um, so Liu Sheng is an imperial relative. He's an alchemist. Um, he gets himself in some trouble. He's um, also a member of what they consider the sort of the um, returning to antiquity movement. Um, he's somebody who is a lot of people think have was responsible for creating sort of our archive for early China writ large. You know, he went out and edited a bunch of texts and, um, you know, basically took them from fragments and made them into something you know, that we now use today. Um, so he's both loved and hated by historians, right, because he in some ways makes it possible for us to do research, but he also makes it difficult because, you know, we don't know, you know, how much monkeying around went with the sources. <laughs> Um, so one of the things that he did was he had a, people go out and get, you know, books, bring them to the um, Imperial Library, have them catalog, have them reorganized, um, cleaned up. And along the way, he had some, pe- some people do this for works of formula as well as medical classics. So medicine was just a small part of his big project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's kind of important to the story because he's the one who goes out and basically creates the category of medicine, um, enumerates works that he considers to be medical in nature. Um, he tells the first origin story by cutting and pasting figures from the various chronicles that he's actually fixing um, and basically synthesizing this stuff. And so I would say he's important because he's the first major. We could joke about him as a misreader, um, but I would actually rather see him as a brick, you know, a bricoleur, somebody who is taking texts and using them in ways that they weren't originally intended, and in the process creating sort of fields of knowledge um, and also sort of bringing meaning, you know, to I think you know what was previous to that time, at that time, a bunch of sort of related activities that you know weren't seen as one thing yet. Um, so, yeah. and, oh, that's it. That's all I have to say about him. <laughs> and this, um, you mentioned the um, idea of a, uh, understanding him as a bricoleur, and we'll actually come back to that, I think, um, toward the end of our conversation, because that idea of bricolage um, is a recurring theme like, throughout the second part of the book. So his narrative gives later healers, and later medieval healers specifically, as you um, point out here in this chapter, a template for writing medical histories. Now, as we move into the next chapter, chapter five, we look at legendary healer Zhang Ji, who is an important figure, as you show here, in the medieval and late imperial medical traditions. Okay, so you start um, here by explaining the way modern accounts often present this figure. So let's kind of start there. Modern accounts um, of Zhang Ji, as you describe here, present him as a kind of tragic figure, right? He begins to study medicine because of an epidemic that wipes out his family. So maybe a good place to start is just to kind of put a little bit of flesh on those bones. How do modern, um, beyond that, or maybe to kind of uh, give your perspective on what's important about that. How do modern historians understand Zhang Ji, and what are you most interested in um, about those understandings? Well, I mean, Zhang Ji is a big figure, right? I mean, in the 20th century, he's the one guy who sort of, uh, I guess, survives the onslaught, right, of, of <laughs> these critiques of traditional Chinese medicine. Um, now, what's interesting about Zhang Ji is, you know, I had previously thought, okay, when I got to him, we had a real person, we have a preface that explains the motives behind his work, that preface looks solid. Um, so we finally have the voice of the healer. Um, and this is, you know, kind of the story that I have with this book, which is that I was, I kept looking for the real thing. And as I looked more carefully at the story behind the preface and this tragic figure, um, I started to have some questions about where that present image comes from and, you know, 
what kind of process was involved in sort of making him into, I think, a, you know, sort of a, a medical ver- sort of counterpart to Confucius, who is also, you know, sort of the tragic sage par excellence. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, you show here um, that this, I'm just to kind of backtrack a little bit. You just mentioned um, that he becomes understood as his counterpart to Confucius, right? Okay. So you're showing um, here that... A really important change along those lines is happening only in the 11th century, right? So let's actually talk a little bit more about that. He becomes at a particular moment associated with Confucius. Why is that important and why does that happen? Well, I mean, here I'm kind of following the the sort of, I I guess, what would be the conventional wisdom now in the field, right? Which is that in the 11th century, the the rise of literati healers, gentlemen who practice medicine, um, not in large numbers quite yet. That happens later. Um, But uh, there's an effort to sort of take medicine and make it into an occupation that gentlemen will practice, right? Um, And in order to to justify this, um, you know, people have to give the corpus, sort of the medical sort of corpus, you know, sort of the look of of the classics. So there has to be some kind of sort of incipient meanings to these, I would say, rather dry sort of books of form, collections of formulas, right? And then to take figures, um, most of whom are murky, and kind of imbue them with some kind of, I would say, magical power, right? Right. and, and in some ways kind of reshape them so that they look very much like people who would be doing classics. Um, now, John G. is an easy target um, because things had been happening to his corpus for centuries. And, you know, it was fortuitous that there was one sort of version that really got some interesting parts added to it later in the process of transmission and creative editing. Um, but I think he's also appealing because he, you know, it, by some accounts had been an official. Um, and, you know, this is a promising start if you want to sort of make healers into sort of Confucian counterparts, right? Because, you know, obviously in sort of, let's say middle period China, or in, obviously in later periods of Chinese history as well, you know, being an official is considered to be, you know, sort of like winning the lottery, right? This is the best job you can get. Um, and these are the guys that are supposed to be doing sort of, you know, classical education and who have some, you know, on a fast track to sagehood, if they're good officials. So I think he was somebody that was, you know, an appealing person to sort of treat as an ancestor, right? Um, or to sort of highlight as somebody that, you know, if you're sort of an aspiring literati healer, as your sort of personal hero, um, and somebody that would actually make you look good as well. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about Zhang Ji's image in this chapter as kaleidoscopic, right? It's um, the chapter's called Zhang Ji, the Kaleidoscopic Father. Um, and you talk about this as one way, I think, conceptually to understand what's going on. So can you flesh that out for us? What, what do you mean by that? And what's important about that? Well, the image of the guy changes over time um, as p- bits and pieces of his corpus um, sort of move, you know, um, in the process of transmission. So, I mean, there are places where commentary gets elevated into into the main text, um, where parts of his sort of corpus comes from elsewhere, right? And it, sometimes it happens by sort of accident and things moving into different locations. And then, you know, a particular sort of image forms um, sometimes, by, you know, I would say just fortuitously. Um, so I, I was thinking about the kaleidoscope when I was thinking about, you know, sort of how texts are transmitted and the kinds of happy accidents that occur sometimes when things get misplaced or when someone thinks that they be- it belongs there, you know. Um, and, and, and it's a way of kind of emphasizing how his image is not stable, right? But that the pieces, you know, can be just moved around a little bit. You don't have to kind of add completely different elements to, to sort of change the way it looks. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. So as we move, we're actually coming toward the end of the book, but we're not there yet. Um, so as we move to the last body chapter, though, chapter six, we move to another figure. This is a chapter that uses the figure of Huang Fu Mi to understand the impact of the medieval reordering of the archive for modern historians. Okay, so today, Huang Fu Mi, um, as you describe here, is largely depicted as an editor of ancient works. So can you talk a little bit about the sort of modern contemporary understandings of this figure? Well, I mean, he's not a, a very sort of appealing figure. So, I mean, I took a, a book that Cambridge actually published a couple of years before mine um, by a big shot in China. And, you know, they say, well, he's not really a doctor. He's just an editor. He's just a transmitter. Um, he, you know, does something with the Yellow Emperor's classic and that's it. 
Now, that is, I think, a telling remark, because if you actually look at the medieval corpus, there are plenty of references to his works on cold for, um, on drug formulary. I mean, he's a major, major figure. Um, he's also somebody like Galen who, you know, boasts about his curative prowess, you know. Uh, so this made me sort of wonder, like, how did this disconnect come about, you know? Um, and that makes me think, OK, well, what's going on? How are images of ancestors being sort of remade over time? What is the process in the mecha- and the sort of mechanisms? Mm-hmm. So you just mentioned, a, um, or you started to say cold food powder, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you, so one of the really interesting things that's happening here is you're showing um, a transformation from the first half of the medieval period to later in the song um, in how he was understood and the kind of figure that he was um, sort of appreciated to be. And in this first half of the medieval period, he was really intimately associated in the minds of, or I don't know anything about the minds of the people, but in the works of the people that we have who are writing about him with this controversial drug called cold food powder. So let's talk about this. What is this drug and what's so controversial about it? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, like most great Chinese drugs, right? It's an aphrodisiac or it's supposed to make you a superhero mm-hmm. um, with your, your favorite person or persons. Um, and I think what's interesting about it is there's a controversy about whether the drug is too dangerous to take or whether it should be left to pros, right? Um, there's also a debate about where Huang for me sits in this spectrum, Um <laughs> uh, and he has several works that are very influential and that circulate and are you find all of our med- early medieval anthologies, including the Ishimpo in Japan. Um, so cold food powder is, I think, supposed to be five different heavy metals. Um, and, you know, it's supposed to make you feel amazing, you know, um, when you take it. Or at least it makes you, it's like mind altering, right? And we know that heavy metals have sort of special sort of powers for making you see interesting things. Um, so that's cold powder. Um, and it's a drug that was huge actually in the, in the medieval period. Um, but you know, heavy metal ingestion is a big thing in sort of China in the middle period in general. And so I would sort of stop there. (laughs) So later in the song period, he becomes known, um, or he, he, kind of gathers a reputation as an editor, right? Rather than um, a reputation that he had had um, as a chronically ill man, as you put it um, here, who was associated with this drug. How does this shift happen? And what's important for us to understand about the nature and source of that shift? Well, it's not an absolute break, right? Because the other sources don't disappear. It's just the amount of repetition that you hear his name, what things are associated with him most often change, right? Um, and, you know, the reason he becomes important in, I think, sort of a certain part of the Song Dynasty is that there is a controversy. There's a lot of interest in sort of making the Yellow Emperor's classic a canonical work. Um, but there are sort of persistent questions about its provenance, right? Um, and sort of there were people who say, look, this can't be done by the ancient sages. Um, and people are saying, well, you know, we need some evidence. So what is the evidence? Well, it's actually Huang Fumi's sort of edited version of the Yellow Emperor's classic where he sort of offers a historical sequence and, you know, attributes that this work, which is kind of a contested piece of writing um, to the ancient sages. Um, Now, he also happens to be somebody who is not just interested in medicine like many of our figures. He's somebody who was, you know, a very famous literatus, right? Um, One of the sort of great minds of the early medieval period. So people, you know, used his words and they used his prestige to make sort of this case for the Alumbra's classic. And I think it's because of that kind of rhetorical necessity that his, you know, the associations with him start to change. Now, you talk here um, late, late in this chapter, sort of toward the end of this chapter, about something that's actually really, really interesting from the perspective of um, the history of drugs and its entanglement with politics. You talk about the fact that this earlier persona, this person who was associated with this particular drug and with the consumption of this controversial drug, becomes kind of rediscovered and revivified in the 20th century by opponents of opium. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the sort of standard works that we consult when we sort of deal with cold food powder is Yu Jashi's work. And he was a May 4th um, doubting antiquities movement figure who actually was pretty moderate um, and actually quite critical of the sort of more extremes of that sort of um, intellectual endeavor. Uh, But basically, he actually goes out and explicitly sort of 
compares cold food powder to opium and makes Huang Fumi sort of, you know, a prophet, right? Or, or Cassandra figure, somebody who's warning against the excesses of this drug, um, which I think is quite interesting um, because it's, it's a lot of us, it's not entirely clear that Huang Fumi is like anti-cold food powder. Um, he just thinks it's hard to get right. Um, so here he's, you know, his remarks are being sort of selected and, and used, I think, selectively to make a sort of rhetorical point, right, about opium, which is something that's on the minds of all of these May 4th figures. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So as we move from here into the epilogue of the book, um, the epilogue does more than simply uh, re, sort of revision or revise or um, revisit, rather, that's the word I wanted, um, the arguments that were in the previous chapters of the book. The epilogue is actually bringing us further in time um, into the present um, and making an important historiographical claim. So the epilogue actually looks at more recent medical history accounts and asks to what extent modern histories reproduce the logic of earlier historiographical practices. It focuses on several of the medical fathers who are featured in 20th century accounts, and it argues um, that there's actually a really striking continuity between 20th century and earlier accounts. So can you talk about that for us? Um, What's the nature of this continuity? And for you, what's particularly interesting about this, and what's especially important for you that we get out of this? Well, I mean, there's two ways of reading this, right? One is to say, okay, we haven't moved beyond Liu Xiang's um, or these ancient Chinese historiography, historians, historians sort of way of reading the past. Isn't this a problem, right? Um, and shouldn't we be more skeptical of our sources? Um, now, what's interesting to me actually is, is you know, the fact that there is continuity that, you know, a lot of us assumed that once people started doing modern historiography in the 20th century, be it in China or Japan or in the United States or England, that the kinds of frameworks we were going to use would be different, right? Um, Would represent a break from earlier traditions of sort of telling the past. Um, Now, what's interesting to me here is actually that that was not the case, right? That there are modern sort of interpretive glazes that I think are put on to these figures, um, for sure. But that actually the sort of basic framework was there already in the early period. Um, and that, you know, these sort of subsequent shifts that occur also are kind of embedded in our archive and sort of live on in the way that we think about sort of what is medical history in, in a Chinese context and how do we go about talking about it? Um, and so this suggests to me that there's a, you know, sort of a broader problem, which is that, you know, or the broader question of, of interest, which is, you know, is there, you know, should we think of Western historiography as sort of completely different from something that you find in traditional China? Or, you know, are there interesting connections? Um, you know, are we in some ways the heirs of that earlier sort of moment? Um, you know, and that I think is something that I didn't expect to see, which is to see Joseph Needham, you know, who is, you know, by most accounts, sort of, you know, a wild Western Orientalist, um, who, you know, is somebody that actually is deeply engaged in these historiographical traditions, whether he knows it or not. Um, And, you know, that to me seems very interesting because I think it it suggests that there's this certain agency to these sort of, I guess, ancient ways of doing things that, you know, live on in, you know, even in English and in English language historiography. As far as, I know you're very interested in historiography and historical practice, and do you think that understanding that fact, right, understanding this um, sort of important continuity and important connection that we have as modern historians with the historiographers of the past or with historians of the past, what are some of the implications of that as we move forward? Like, is there any way that that should, um, might, or can uh, impact our craft as we think about and practice? Well, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it depends on your perspective. Some people think it's horrible, right? <laughs> and that I'm criticizing the field. I actually am. I don't think I am. Um, I think that there is a tendency to over, let's just say that this is probably the fact because I'm a child of the 90s, right? That, you know, we think of this uh, historiographical traditions as subject to rupture that, you know, what comes, you know, the ways that people tell stories about China and or any place in the sort of 
non-Western world is fundamentally different in the modern period than it is in the pre-modern world, right? These are incommensurate sort of styles of reasoning. Um, and I think what I found in sort of writing this book that that is not the case, right? That there's a tendency to overvalue, I think, the power of the modern um, and Western historiographical traditions, Western theory, um, you know, that the, the, the early pioneers of this craft at some level were, I think, deeply engaged in serious conversation and often these conversations happen with collaborators, but they also happen through the material, through the archive, right? Um, and those conversations are more sort of like, I guess, in sort of incipient or, or sort of implicit than anything else. Um, so I think this suggests that, you know, that doing sort of ancient history is in some ways means that we have to do history. We do history like the ancients. Mm-hmm. That's actually a really interesting way of putting it. Now, the chapter, the last thing I'll ask you before we um, move to our conclusion is something that um, the chapter brings up toward the end. And it's also something that we talked about very briefly earlier in our conversation when you brought up the figure of the bricoleur. Now, the chapter suggests that modern histories might be considered as bricolage. So um, can you talk about that a little bit? For you, what's, um, what's significant about that and, and why is it significant for us to understand that? Well, I mean, it's the fact the fact that we are bricoleur, cutting and pasting things in sort of novel arrangements and imbuing them with our own meanings, right? That weren't in, originally intended um, by the makers, right? Um, that that I think suggests that that we are not any different from Liu Xiang and the other sort of mm-hmm. the ancients that you know that in some ways gave us our archive. Um, so that I think that's what actually con- unites us to them. You know, is the fact that we're doing more or less the same kind of thing. So, Miranda, there's a ton of stuff we could have talked about, right? There's a lot of really detailed analysis of the source base and um, the conceptual foundations of how you're reading those sources to come up with these readings of these uh, figures, these personae that we've talked about over the course of the chapters. There's a lot more, um, that is to say, in the book than we had a chance to cover. But given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't talk about but that you would like to mention uh, for listeners about the book and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to be readers <laughs> well i mean i would say just wait until it's out in paperback because it's gonna be a lot cheaper <laughs> <laughs> and miranda now that the book is out um what's what's next for you what's currently inspiring you and what are you working on and thinking about now well i mean i'm not thinking very much right now because i have an infant right now <laughs> But I think that what I'm going to be doing is kind of working more with historiography. Um, mm-hmm. I'm interested in notions of time and sort of the construction of the warring states as a sort of historical moment, where that comes from. I, you know, as a preview, don't think it's a modern artifact <laughs> any more than I think that, you know, the, the medical fathers are a modern artifact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also interested in sort of sort of pushing this point about how, you know, the past lives on in us, right? Um, and maybe looking at food and drink, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I think that, you know, it's easy to imagine globalization as a modern phenomena, but there are a lot of interesting connections um, in that it's a little bit like the archive, you know, every sort of dish in some ways has many different moments of times, uh, time sort of, you know, embedded in, you know, in the different layers of the sort of the food product. <laughs> um, so I think I might be moving in that direction as well. Well, best of luck with that work. And thanks for taking time away from that to talk with us about this one. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll catch you next time.